0: I'm Lillian Vasquez, and this is Inland Edition. If you watch old movies, and I mean old movies, you might recall often seeing a leading man dropping a cigarette on the ground and stepping on it. For many years, this practice was common, on and off the big screen. These days, if you stomp out a cigarette and someone was there to enforce litter laws, you might get a ticket. Today on Inland Edition, we're talking trash with Wynne Calger. He's an environmental scientist at UC Riverside. He'll explain how and why he and his colleagues are studying litter, and he'll explain some of their findings. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Okay, so let's talk trash. I've always wanted to say that. I've always, <laughs> I've always hated litter and litter bugs, so I'm excited to hear about the study of which you were a part of and was published in the journal Environmental Research. Tell me, what were you trying to learn by this particular study?
1: Yeah. So the major things that we were trying to look into were we wanted to know where the trash on roadsides here around the Inland Empire is coming from. And we also wanted to use some of the really interesting information on the trash to try to track its sources and behavior going from the place where it's sold to where we found it. Um, And specifically, I'm speaking about the receipts that we found during this study, where we looked at receipts, Addresses where their receipts came from, and then where we found the receipts, and also the timestamps of when the receipts were created, and then when we found them to use, use that information to track the receipts movement.
0: All right, so there's a couple of things I want to ask about that further. So, where specifically did the test take place? What streets or what cities, where was this taking place here in our Inland Empire community?
1: There were several different cities. We had uh, Marina Valley, Riverside. San Bernardino, and a couple of other cities here in the Inland Empire. So it was pretty spread out, but mostly concentrated here near UC Riverside's campus in the metropolitan area of Riverside and San Bernardino.
0: And who were the participants? Who was helping you gather this trash?
1: So we had several researchers from UC Riverside join us. We had a pretty novel uh, research setup where we invited undergraduates to join us as researchers in a collaborator capacity, where they got to choose their own sites and do some of their study design to figure out what was going on in the trash in their area.
0: Okay. I want to talk about some of the, the sources that you found and how you decided to use the receipts. So what did you learn by the study? What did you learn?
1: So some of the big things we found, so with, with the receipts, um, we were able to figure out if rain or wind or people could have been the major process transporting the receipts from where they were created to where we found them. To do that, basically, we, we used an approach where we tested each of those potential pathways. So first, starting with whether rain could have transported the receipt, we looked at when the receipt was created. And then when we found it, and we just looked at the weather to see if there was any rain that occurred between those dates, and if there wasn't, then rain couldn't be a responsible process. So we crossed that one off because it wasn't occurring for most of the receipts. And then the next one was wind direction. So we looked at the wind patterns during the time when the receipt was could have been in the environment, and we looked to see if that correlated with the direction that the receipts went. And we found that in many of the cases... The receipts were going in you know, opposite directions of where the where the wind was going, so it didn't make sense that that could have been the main process driving the movement of these receipts. And then the last one, we looked at people, and uh, there's some new data sets that have come out where the Bureau of Transportation Statistics basically tells you how many people are moving and how far they're moving, and we can look at that on a county basis, and you can look at it over the whole period of this study And we were able to see a correlation with how far the receipts were being transported and how far people were moving. Um, So that made us think that the main transport mechanism, getting the trash from the place where the receipts are sold to where we found them in the roadsides, was people.
0: Okay. So after your study and you looked at the way the receipts or the trash traveled, whether it was by the rain or the wind or the people, what do you now know that you didn't know before?
1: So really nobody studied receipt litter, so that was a pretty that was a pretty new thing that we were able to do where to test these different processes and really before this study came out because we didn't know whether like what the predominant process of trash getting into the environment was the research was kind of gray on whether the trash was just like running off of these of these locations where it's being sold, um, or being blown out of there, or whether it was being transported away. And the importance of this, of the the distinction there, is that if trash is just all being uh, created where it's being sold and it's getting into the environment right there, then you can use management actions like you can put um, trash cans at the locations where it's being sold, or um, you can have, you know, uh, focused cleanups there, different things like that, that are all happening on site. But because the trash is being taken off site, we need to think more broadly about trash and how it's getting into the environment. And um, I think it, it really says that producers need to think about this additional input to the environment that their products are, are creating, that they're not currently controlling.
0: Our guest is Wynne Calgar. He is an environmental scientist with UC Riverside and recently participated in a trash study. What's the most common particles of trash that you found?
1: So the trash that we found, and this this is really common other places too, is um, predominantly plastic. We also found quite a bit of paper here in the Inland Empire. And then we can break that down too by the type of object that the, the trash is. We know that most of the trash is food-related objects or smoking-related objects, and then we can also look at the brands that the trash has on it. And we see that most of the trash is coming from really big name producers of food and tobacco products. So some of them are like Jack in the Box was one of them, and then uh, Philip Morris was a that's a cigarette producer that that most of the trash was branded with.
0: Okay, so I want to ask a little bit about that. When you say Jack-in-the-Box, were there close Jack-in-the-Box restaurants nearby, and maybe that's why they're more predominant in the area, and maybe that's why we saw that trash? Cigarette butts is what I'm guessing you found a lot of, so that I guess that would be anywhere. But the fact that you could say Jack-in-the-Box, what are your thoughts there?
1: Right, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I had a colleague reach out to me after we released this study And they said that they don't have jack-in-the-box where where they're at. They live out on the East Coast, so they never see jack-in-the-box. But, yeah, we have a lot of jack-in-the-box here in the Inland Empire, so we're seeing a lot of that in our trash here. This study really points to localized trash dynamics. So a lot of the the trash that we're finding on our roadsides is coming from local areas. Most of the trash actually came from less than two miles away from where we found it. Hmm. And so that really points to a a real need to monitor for trash at a high resolution, looking at local areas and trying to understand the trash dynamics that are there so that we can figure out what the best management efforts are that we can employ.
0: Okay, so who's to blame or are we just pointing fingers at one another?
1: I think all of us have a responsibility to address the trash problem I think that individuals have a responsibility to you know, make sure that they're not littering and their trash cans aren't overflowing and that they're purchasing things responsibly. I think that producers have a responsibility to create products which aren't harmful in the environment. And I think that governments have a responsibility to make sure that people and individuals are being kept in, in check and in balance and making policies that are going to make sure that we have less getting into the environment. So
0: clearly there's a road ahead of us for sure. You're listening to Inland Edition on KVCR. I'm Lillian Vasquez. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with environmental scientist Wynne Calgar. Stay with us. This is Inland Edition. If you're just joining us, our guest is Wynne Calgar. He is an environmental scientist with UC Riverside, and he participated in a study on roadside rubbish, among many others, that he looks at plastics and also looks at pollution. I want to mention this. Your colleague, Andrew Gray, stated, if we don't produce the stuff in the first place, We wouldn't get it into the environment. What, say you, that kind of goes with what you just said before we took the break, that we have to look at everybody. But what are your thoughts there and his statement?
1: Right, yeah, I I think he's absolutely right that if we don't produce products, they'll they'll never have a chance to get into the environment. And that's really the – that is the best way to stop danger from happening to the environment is to not produce things that, are, that could potentially be hazardous when they get out there. So yeah, I, I think he's right. And I think that currently, um, right now, there's not enough action happening on that front. There's a lot of actions where people are going out and cleaning up trash once it gets into the environment. But really, it's already too late once it's gotten into the environment. I mean, the harm's already been done, right? So we'd ideally want the trash not to get into the environment in the first place. And I think what this study really calls for is an extension to producer responsibility and having producers think and make sure that their products that they're producing aren't going to harm the environment when they eventually end up getting out there.
0: So you're saying not produce it. In in a world that we live in today, everybody wants the quickest, the finest, the easiest, and the fastest. So how do we produce the items that that you say we shouldn't produce and still go about our day?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, There are a lot of different things that we can, a lot of different pressure points we can think about when we're producing materials. Uh, So one of them is to make it less toxic to the environment. So like I said, most of the trash that we found was plastic. Plastic sticks around in the environment for a long time, so it accumulates in the environment and increases over time. And um, it's one of the most, toxic materials that we know of right now too. So that's really uh, a scary thing. So we could think about switching over to more paper products, for example, which we think are less harmful in the environment. Okay. So that's one example. Another thing we could do is we could create more value for the products that we have. So a shift away from disposables would be ideal. We'd want to have Reusables, so like having a metal cup, for example, nobody's going to take that and just like toss it out in the street. You'd clean it, you'd bring it back to the place where you got your drink or whatever, and Reuse you would it. return that <laughs> yeah. to get yeah to get a new one. Okay. And so that's obviously an even better solution is to switch over, but it does require a shift in our current status quo and in what people want, what you know people are consuming at a high level, and so we need to make it easy to reuse. I think we need to make it easier and producers are going to have to be on board to make that happen.
0: Is there also the simple task of just encouraging people to use a trash can or is that too common or just too low-level thinking?
1: No, I mean, I I think that 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 is important. I definitely wouldn't say that individuals don't need to be educated about waste and waste management. I think we all do need to be educated about waste and waste management, but I do think that that only goes so far. You know, for example, there's things that happen that are out of our control. Like there's like a big wind storm. We have these here all the time in Southern California. Big Santa Ana winds come in. They just rip the trash can lids wide open. All the trash gets blown into the street. And, you know, even if people were being responsible with their trash and making sure that it went into the trash can, you know, it would end up getting into the environment. So these are the kind of things that I guess uh, keep me up at night.
0: Uh So one good wind could do a whole bunch of things. And I always look at the wind as the air seems so much clearer and cleaner and we can see our mountains so much better after a good windstorm. But maybe you're looking at it from another point of view. Will you tell me what broken window theory is?
1: Yeah. So the idea of broken window theory is that you have a broken window in a neighborhood and then the whole neighborhood goes bad you know everything starts to break down from that then you have a fire you know one of the houses burns down the road starts cracking up just people just don't care about it basically is the theory behind broken window theory and this has been applied to trash quite a bit in the past and there have been studies that have you know suggested that if there's litter in an area people are more likely to continue littering there but if there isn't litter in, in an area, then they're less likely to continue littering.
0: Based on what you shared with us, is there suggestions for possible ideas, thoughts, or solutions that you want the community to be aware of looking forward? I mean, I'm sure many of us are not thinking about trash as much as you are, or it's not keeping us up at night. So what possible ideas, thoughts, or solutions would you suggest?
1: Yeah. So... I think that everyone has a role to play here. I would like to see people talking to their producers and asking them to change the materials that they're providing us. A lot of times when you go to this grocery store, there's this like illusion of having choices, but there really aren't choices. If you want to get a bag of chips, it only comes in a plastic bag. So there's a lot of examples where that, that is the case. And so really, we need to get a shift in what we're being served so that way we can rapidly address the trash problem.
0: And I'm guessing here, but I'm sure during the pandemic, the trash had to increase with the amount of plastic that was being done for takeouts.
1: Right. Yeah, definitely.
0: All right. What's next for you or additional studies or follow-ups to this? What's coming next?
1: So we're trying to expand this research to other communities. So right now I have a a grant proposal in to do the same project in Long Beach. I also have a collaboration going on with a group up in Portland where they're trying to do the same study. Like we said earlier, uh, trash is not the same everywhere, and there's going to be different ways to address it in each area. So I'd like to see how variable the trash dynamics are um, across, you know, the United States and maybe eventually the, the whole world and figure out how we can develop these local policies, local actions to address the problem using the data.
0: And lastly, the students that participated, what was their feedback? What was their input or what was their comments? What did they share with you based on the study? For some of them, maybe it was their first study in this
1: nature. Right. Yeah yeah I think all of them were really excited. many of them were co-authors on the manuscript, which was really cool to see them participating in the development of the of the research paper. They said that they had a really good time out there studying the trash and talking with their local community members. I had some different anecdotes. somebody would come and ask them what they were doing, and they'd tell them about the project and then you know they saw the next day those people were out helping clean up the community too so those kind of stories are really cool to hear. And, um, yeah, it was a great working with all of those undergraduate collaborators on this project.
0: Well, very cool. It kind of had a ripple effect. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been uh, interesting to learn. I wish you success in your next uh, Long Beach and wherever you venture off to to research trash.
1: Thank you. Thanks a lot.
0: To find the article that inspired our conversation today, you can follow a link we have on the Inland Edition program page at kvcrnews.org slash edition. And since we're talking trash, let's hear from KVCR's Sharina Wad about another litter problem.
2: Kara Rogers is the Senior Editor of Biomedical Sciences at Encyclopedia Britannica, where she oversees a range of content from medicine and genetics to microorganisms. The following is from an article first published in February 2019 and updated in August 2020. Microplastics are small pieces of plastic less than 5 millimeters in length that occur in the environment as a consequence of plastic pollution. Microplastics are present in a variety of products, from cosmetics to synthetic clothing to plastic bags and bottles. Many of these products readily enter the environment in waste. Microplastics consist of carbon and hydrogen atoms bound together in polymer chains. Other chemicals, including phthalates, are typically also present in microplastics, and many of these chemical additives leach out of the plastics after entering the environment. Microplastics are divided into two types, primary and secondary, Examples of primary microplastics include microbeads found in personal care products, plastic pellets or nurdles used in industrial manufacturing, and plastic fibers used in synthetic textiles. Primary microplastics enter the environment directly through any of various channels. For example, product use, such as personal care products being washed into wastewater systems, unintentional loss from spills during manufacturing or transport, or abrasion during washing. Secondary microplastics form from the breakdown of larger plastics. This typically happens when larger plastics undergo weathering through exposure to, for example, wave action, wind abrasion, and ultraviolet radiation from sunlight. Microplastics are not biodegradable. Thus, once in the environment, primary and secondary microplastics accumulate and persist. Microplastics have been found in a variety of environments, including oceans and freshwater ecosystems. In oceans alone, annual plastic pollution from all types of plastics was estimated at 4 million to 14 million tons in the early 21st century. Microplastics are also a source of air pollution occurring in dust and airborne fibrous particles. The health effects of microplastics inhalation are unknown. By 2018, in marine and freshwater ecosystems combined, microplastics have been found in more than 114 aquatic species. Microplastics have been found lodged in the digestive tracts and tissues of various invertebrate sea animals, including crustaceans such as crabs. Fish and birds are likely to ingest microplastics floating on the water surface, mistaking the plastic bits for food. The ingestion of microplastics can cause aquatic species to consume less food and therefore to have less energy to carry out life functions, and it can result in neurological and reproductive toxicity. Microplastics are suspected of working their way up the marine food chains from zooplankton and small fish to large marine predators. Microplastics have been detected in drinking water, beer, and food products, including seafood and table salt. In a pilot study involving eight individuals from eight different countries, microplastics were recovered from stool samples of every participant. Scientists have also detected microplastics in human tissues and organs. The implications of these findings for human health were uncertain. Between 1950 and 2015, some 6,300 million metric tons of plastic waste were generated. The majority of this waste, about 4,900 million metric tons, ended up in landfills and the environment. On the basis of trends from that period, researchers estimated that by 2050, the amount of plastic waste in landfills and the environment would reach 12,000 million metric tons. Nonetheless, the potential dangers of escalating plastics pollution, especially pollution from microplastics, remained largely ignored by governments and policymakers. To help overcome this obstacle, organizations such as the United Nations Expert Panel of the United Nations Environmental Program engaged more than 100 countries in educational campaigns aimed at raising awareness of plastics pollution and encouraging reuse and recycling of plastics. Other international cooperative programs were established to address marine waste, including microplastics pollution. In 2015, the United States passed the Microbead-Free Waters Act, which prohibits the manufacture and distribution of rinse-off cosmetic products that contain plastic microbeads. Many other countries also placed bans on microbeads. Remediation of microplastics already in the environment is another key component of reducing microplastics pollution. Strategies under investigation included the use of microorganisms capable of breaking down synthetic microplastic polymers. A number of bacterial and fungal species possess biodegradation capabilities, breaking down chemicals such as polystyrene, polyester polyurethane, and polyethylene. Such microorganisms potentially can be applied to sewage wastewater and other contaminated environments. We'll put a link to this article on our program page when we add this episode of Inland Edition to our website. For Inland Edition and KVCR, I'm Sherina Wad.
0: Join us again next week for Inland Edition, Wednesday at 2 p.m. and 6.30, right here on KVCR. To hear this episode and past shows, Visit our website at kvcrnews.org slash Inland Edition. You can also listen to Inland Edition on iTunes, Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. Or search for Inland Edition on your favorite streaming service. Inland Edition is a production of KVCR News. Support for this production, including writing and editing, comes from Rick Dulock, Sharina Wad, and David Fleming. And we get technical website and social media support from Tim Stiddle, Sean Houlihan, and Natasha Coles. I'm Lillian Vasquez. Thanks for listening, and bye for now.